this was rural Ohio and it's uh, agriculture, and so they were doing a lot of harvesting. And the German POWs there seemed to work real hard and had a good relationship with the farmers and the owners of that property. And uh, they were very positive about the POWs. Came across one person who had said in 1970 she had gone to Germany to visit and was doing a tour. And the tour guide mentioned that he had been a POW in the United States. And she said, well, I'm from Cleveland, Ohio. And he said, well, you know, I was really treated fairly at Camp Perry. And he said, I really have pleasant memories. Well, I think the pleasant memories stem from the fact they were fed well, they were clothed well, and they had the opportunity to get out of the camp and work. So it's really contrary to what RGIs experienced in Europe and in Japan. During World War II, Allied forces took 600,000 Italians as prisoners of war. 51,000 were brought to the United States. When we left there, we don't know where we were going. We only saw America when we arrived. I saw America and said, this is another world. They were only young men when the war made them soldiers. They left their homes and their families behind, never imagining the future that awaited them. You love your country, but America gave it to me everything. Well, I had uh, volunteered for the Africa Corps, which was a better chance than going to Russia. I was sent to Tunisia, which was former French colony. See, I was drafted in the army to be a, a guard. That's what we were trained for from the time I went in till, till they busted us up. The Geneva Convention states that the prisoners that were here, which were non-commissioned officers and enlisted men, could work on non-war related projects, which meant that they could work in the agricultural fields or the lumber industry or the rice fields. Morning wake up was probably around seven and probably breakfast at eight. Of course, we were assigned to work details. And uh, so at eight o'clock for a while, I worked on farms. They would work, and I believe they drawed 80, something like 80 cents a day. And I don't think they drawed it in money, but they drawed it in slips where they could spend it and buy stuff with it. On their days off or, or when they weren't working, they would engage in all sorts of different activities. They started a school where they, they learned everything from history to English to foreign languages. They um, would do construction projects and build fountains, create statuary. They had uh, painting classes. They had uh, orchestras here to entertain themselves. In a way, we were all Nazis. I was in the Hitler Youth from 14 to 18. And um, uh, I, I grew up in the, the Nazi doctrine, Hitler was the leader and all that stuff. But um, I was not very well liked by uh, ardent Nazis. I spoke enough English to make myself understood. There were orders given what to do. I had to translate. When you're a prisoner of war, you have to make a decision. The power were the guards. And that took me through the whole four and a half years of prison war camp because I uh, made friends with guards, and, and by and large, it was always in my favor. I'd say I was lucky to be a prisoner of war guard. We wasn't fighting overseas. But when they busted up, see, I went to the infantry. And I don't talk much about that.
are listening to a production of the Social Voice Podcast Network. Hey, welcome to this very special episode of Veteran Voices, the Oral History Podcast. Man, it's been a long time since we did an episode. I think last year was uh, the last time we did an episode. Uh, So we are back. We are still alive and still vibrant. This podcast features conversations with those who tell veteran stories in creative and interesting ways. Oral historians, authors, poets, playwrights, photographers. This isn't so much about veteran stories themselves from the veterans, but more focused on those who tell the stories of veterans, like Dr. Jim Van Curen, who is our guest today. Now, Jim has written a fascinating book, came out in 2018, and it's called World War II POW Camps in Ohio. Jim, hey, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you very much, Kevin. I'm just glad to be here. Yeah, I was really surprised you know, when you reached out to me about your book. I'd never heard of it. My apologies. And you know what? I had never heard of World War II POW camps in Ohio. That's, whoa, that's new to me. Well, this kind of piqued my interest because we uh, have a vacation home on Putin Bay, South Bass Island, which is outside of Port Clinton, Ohio. And one of the, some of the islanders had told me that, did you know in Port Clinton at Camp Perry that there were POWs there? during World War II, German and Italian. So this kind of piqued my interest. And then the editor for the Put-in-Bay Gazette said, did you know, Jim, that down at the state park, those lodges there were once POW hutments in Camp Perry, and they were moved to the island. So this kind of piqued my interest, and I started to do some research and, uh, in the library in Port Clinton and talking to the camp commander at Camp Perry to try to gather information uh, about the POWs in Ohio and at Camp Perry, and also worked with a curator at the Ottawa County Historical Museum, Peggy Dibin, who had information about the POWs, a uniform in the museum, and other materials. So this kind of got me going on that research direction. There were 10 camps in Ohio? 10 camps, right. There were Camp Perry was the base camp, and then there were 10 branch camps and um, most of them were in northeastern Ohio, but there were several branch camps uh, that were hospitals, and one was in Carmel, Ohio, and it's called the Cryo General Hospital, and where they treated over 15,000 wounded soldiers during World War II. It later became a Nike base, and then today it's a tri-county campus, uh, a community college campus. The other hospital was down in Cambridge, Ohio, in southeastern Ohio, where I was a school superintendent in that area. And the Fletcher General Hospital treated over 17,000 wounded soldiers. And those soldiers were uh, rehab areas and trauma centers. And they had over 250 POWs that assisted with the maintenance in that particular hospital. And then in North, northeastern, western, western Ohio, excuse me, camps were set up to do the harvesting of tomatoes and crops. And that was the main industry in that part of Ohio. So Camp Perry became a labor force of about 6,000 POWs spread throughout northwestern Ohio and at the two hospitals. I'm on the border of Ohio and Pennsylvania here in Beaver County. And I'll tell you, you said there was a camp in southeastern Ohio. Is that right? I'm not sure about southeastern, but there was one down in Clinton County, uh, southern Ohio, that um, was there for harvesting corn for hogs, and that was their major industry. And so there were about 200 POWs from Camp Perry that worked there for a short period of time, and then were sent back to Camp Perry. Mm-hmm. So really not, not too far from Pennsylvania, really? No, not far at all, no. 
I bring this up because this is this is just news to me. I, I, as I said, I never knew that there were camps there, and I didn't know until recently there was a camp um, in Western Pennsylvania. Um, I don't have the name of it here. Um, uh, so this this is really new, and I, and I want to keen on something that uh, is in the blurb of your book. Now, this is described as the neglected history. Right. Could you talk a little bit about why this is neglected? Yeah, I uh, was at one time a school superintendent in Ohio, and uh, of course we had you know numerous history courses, and then I was on higher education at Ashland University where I was dean of the College of Education. And part of our curriculum was, was history uh, that some of the students had to take. And there was never any mention of uh, POWs in Ohio or POWs in the United States. And so this kind of opened up a new avenue because when at the peak of it in April of 1945, we had 425,000 POWs uh, spread throughout the United States. There were only four states that didn't have POWs, and that was in Montana and Nevada North Dakota, and Vermont. But the rest of the country had uh, over 600 camps spread throughout the United States. And for Ohio, Camp Perry was the leader with over 6,000 POWs. And the major reason that we had POWs come to the United States in Ohio was for a labor force. And at the end of 1944, it was estimated that because of the POWs working across the country, the United States government saved $80 million in wages. And, of course, this caused some problems with labor unions. And, uh, but those were resolved because there wasn't anybody to do the work. So the labor unions said, yes, go ahead, use the POWs in the labor force to help with the economy in the United States during World War II. And the neat thing was is that eventually, we, you know, you had civilians working side by side uh, with the POWs, and in particular, in Columbus at the Columbus Depot, had 10,000 residents working in the depot as a supply chain with about 400 POWs, and they were working side by side. In the case of Germans, in that case, there had to be a guard nearby, but with the Italians, since they became co-belligerents in 1943, uh, they were given a lot of privileges, and they in turn didn't need the supervision that the Germans did. Did the authorities have difficulty explaining this, these situations to the locals? Yes, it was, it was a big problem because the POWs were to receive the same kind of food and lodging that the GIs were receiving, uh, our American soldiers. And a lot of times the food was better than the, what the locals received. So there were complaints nationwide about coddling prisoners of war when in turn, you know, these prisoners had killed maybe some of the relatives that had served abroad, and they, now they're working side by side with them. So there was some resentment in some cases. Not so much with the Italians, but there was resentment with the Germans. And the Germans at the POW camps, in, in some cases, were very hostile. And they would abuse those anti-Nazi POWs and cause some problems and hold kangaroo courts. Because the, the government said that uh, leave the prisoners alone, let, let the prisoners kind of man themselves, because we don't have the guards to watch over the prisoners of war. That's fascinating. I, I've interviewed a lot of World War II veterans who had experiences with prisoners of war in Europe, even, even in the Pacific, but mostly Europe. And I, I'm trying to think of a, a corollary experience 
um, among with American or allied POWs in Europe, for example, working with the local populations and so forth. Are you aware of any of those experiences that, in Europe that correlated uh, the Ohio experience? Well, the only thing that I, I'm aware of, I did some talks around the Cleveland area at some libraries and some of the people that attended it uh, would say the one lady had said uh, during one of my conversations is that her father came back at 80 pounds and was tortured basically at a German POW camp. And then another person at another time said, well, my uncle came back and he was uh, 90 pounds and didn't receive the care that we gave the POWs here in the United States. And so they said there was some real resentment when their relatives came back uh, to the United States. Sure, that's so understandable. And that raises a question of the awareness in the communities that, well, I'm sure, you know, people knew that there was a prisoner war camp there, but how much awareness was there? Did did the locals know about what was going on in the camps? Did they, did they know people on first name basis and so forth? Well, in Port Clinton, for instance, um, given the Italians were given these privileges that they could basically kind of roam free. I remember one resident told me that they saw uh, downtown Port Clinton, some Italian prisoners of war kind of wandering around with little or no supervision. And a congressman out of Sandusky uh, at this time, Congressman Weichel, was upset that POWs were going to come over to Sandusky, Ohio, and do a tour. So he wrote the War Department to stop that from happening, and the War Department relinquished and said, uh, okay, we're, we're not going to allow that to happen. But yet, adjacent to Camp Perry was the Erie Proving Ground, which was a base that they rehabbed artillery equipment. Basically, 70% of all of the mobile artillery in the United States was gone through this particular area. And so they had 5,000 residents in the Port Clinton area and a thousand Italian POWs that worked there. And the POWs at Erie Proving Grounds set up a date hut. So Italian girls from Toledo would come and be able to basically date the Italian prisoners of war at, at this date hut. Hmm. And from what I understand, they expanded it. And later, some of the Italian POWs came back and married the girls that they had dated at the date hut. Wow, no kidding. Yeah, that's pretty accurate because I had some... During one of my presentations, someone um, arose and said, you know, my father was at Erie Proving Ground, and uh, he dated uh, my mother from Cleveland, Ohio, who was brought to the date hut, and they've married and came back to the United States to live. Are there any known cases of espionage or spies throughout the camps? Well, not, not that I'm aware of, but there were some attempts at escapes. At Camp Perry, they had some prisoners housed working in a plant in Fosteria, which, which is a little bit north of that, that camp and closer to, or south of that camp, closer to Columbus. And two of them escaped, and a GI in Columbus, Ohio, spotted these two people crossing against a red light, plus they had GI boots on, so he turned them in and they were sent back to Camp Perry. And then there was some unhappiness, obviously, with the people being confined like they were, and at Camp Perry, they discovered someone that had escaped, but was hanging from a tree uh, about a mile away, had committed suicide. Uh, the other thing about the unhappiness was periodic strikes. In March of 1945 at Camp Perry, 2,200 Germans went on strike because they didn't like the work routine that they were given. And so they were put on bread and water and finally returned 
to work to clean up the camp after the strike. And so there was those kinds of things that were encountered uh, with the POWs. Not so much with the Italians, but a lot, quite a bit with the Germans. What about violence? Um, the violence was internally. It would have been with the hardcore Nazis, with uh, those anti-Nazi German POWs. And so, they, like I said before, they held kangaroo courts. They kind of abused them in some cases. And see, we had didn't have the manpower for guards because most of the people were in, obviously abroad, overseas. And so the government had to trust the Germans and Italians to do basically a lot of their own supervision. And this caused problems, especially in the POW camps that housed the Germans. Hmm. So give me a sense of the timeline here. When did the prisoners start to come to Ohio? What was the heyday? In other words, you know, the peak population there. And then when did these camps shut down? Well, the first POWs came to the United States in 1942. And in October of 1943, Camp Perry received Italian prisoners of war, and they started to come uh, to the United States, and some of them were dispersed to Camp Perry. And then in June of 1944, we had German POWs coming to Camp Perry, and basically there were probably, in the end, about 3,000 in Camp Perry, where the Italian prisoners of war were moved to the Rossford Ordnance Depot and to the Erie Proving Ground. And then they started to being repatriated back in February of uh, 1946, and then all of them left the United States in June of 1946. But in the end, there were 371 prisoners of war left behind in the United States because they had committed some kind of crime and they were in penal institutions uh, with some Germans, some Italians, and a couple Japanese. Japanese? Yeah, I didn't come across anything about the Japanese other than there were about uh, 4,000 POWs here in the United States, and I'm thinking maybe they were on the West Coast. Uh, So the total... When you look at it of April of 1945, we had 425,000 POWs in the United States with about 371,000 Germans and 50,000 Italians and about 4,000 Japanese. So the total POWs in America, over 425,000 here. And uh, what I like about your book is you have some nice graphs, nice, uh, you have maps in there, you have lots of photographs. And I see you have a you have a graph here of uh, the population of camps in Ohio. And I see around July 1945, that was the peak, right? That was the peak, right. I'm, I'm curious, uh, after the war, when the war ended, and you had, you know, people in the camps, what was the disposition of those uh, prisoners? Were they sort of um, administratively exported out of the country? Were they allowed to stay? What what status did they have? Yeah, they all had to be repatriated. So they weren't allowed to stay. And they left, the, like I think I said before, they left in June of 1946 was the last group of prisoners to leave the United States. But in some cases with the Italians, at least at Camp Perry, some of them came back and married because they had set up that relationship uh, with some of the Italian uh, girls from Toledo, and apparently there were some from Cleveland that came down to uh, socialize with uh, the POWs. And uh, like I said, the one couple that came to one of my presentations had a newspaper article about her parents. Her mother was uh, from Cleveland and ended up marrying one of the POWs at Camp Perry and then came back to live in the United States. 
Now, you obviously did archival research, uh, you know, for the book, but you, you say you've also, uh, you've tapped into first-person accounts of the people, who've, you know, the civilians, the prisoners in war, oral histories? Right. Through um, the Ottawa County Historical Museum, they had done some research and interviews of people who had worked with the POWs. And uh, those interviews seemed pretty positive um, because this was rural Ohio and it's uh, agriculture. And so they were doing a lot of harvesting and the German POWs there seemed to be real, work real hard and had a good relationship with the farmers and the owners of that property. And uh, they were very positive about um, the POWs. I uh, came across one person who had said in 1970, she had gone to Germany to visit and was doing a tour and the tour guide mentioned that he had been a POW in the United States. And she said, well, I'm from Cleveland, Ohio. And he said, well, you know, I was really treated fairly at Camp Perry. And he said, I really have pleasant memories. Well, I think the pleasant memories stem from the fact they were fed well, they were clothed well, and they had the opportunity to get out of the camp and work. So it's really contrary to what our GIs experienced in Europe and in Japan. Oh, absolutely. That goes back to you know the work that I've done with World War II vets who had those experiences with camps and prisoners. And yeah, it is a totally different experience on the two different continents. And doing some research for our interview, I came across a photograph of a prisoner war camp, uh, I believe it was out west somewhere, and there were Nazi flags in the barracks. And apparently they were allowed to have you know these displays of their home country. They could do that in their hutments. But outside of the Hutments, they weren't allowed to do that. And when the um, POWs first came to the United States, all the medals were taken off and their decorations. But the Geneva Convention, Article 19, said that they were allowed to wear their decorations and medals. So in my book, I have a picture of a German officer with his medals on, uh, seated at a table, which really surprised me. But uh, they did allow that to happen when the prisoners of war came here. I know in the camps in Europe that uh, you know, the military there who were you know, prisoners, they, they stuck to uh, the military regulations. In other words, the highest ranking officer would be the person in command in that camp. So there was this um, continuation of the military order. Was that also true here? Right. That was true. The non-commissioned and commissioned officers didn't have to work if they didn't want to. Those that were not commissioned were paid 80 cents a day and 10 cents for necessities, while the officers were paid like 40 to $50 a month, and they did not have to work if they didn't want to. And in most cases, they, they didn't work. Mm-hmm. What was the highest-ranking officer in the camps? As far as I know, there would probably would have been a captain uh, in the German army uh, that was housed at Camp Perry. Mm-hmm. At least I've seen a picture of one. Hmm. Now, of all the 10 camps, did each camp have a sort of reputation or were they known for certain things, certain ways that they were treated, uh, certain kinds of work that they were doing? Well, in, um, for instance, Marion, Ohio, the Camp Marion there, they were involved with rehabbing uh, machinery and equipment that were sent abroad. And uh, they were kind of hostile. They had some strikes there. And they didn't want to work in the rain, and so they went on strike for three days. They were put on bread and water and eventually went back to the camp. An interesting piece was those prisoners at Camp Marion 
also worked at the Sayada Ordnance Plant, which was a bomb-making plant that was neighbor to Camp Marion, the Marion Engineering Depot. And they were involved in the assembly line making bombs, which was contrary to the Geneva Convention. So I guess we let them do that because we didn't have the manpower or people power to, to do the bomb making, which was really contrary to the Geneva Convention requirements. Right. And kind of counterintuitive when you think about um, the enemy making the munitions that you're going to use against the enemy. I, you know, there are no cases of sabotage. Yeah. In a, in a camp, in a, in Ohio camps was, was strikes and uh, really not much destruction, but just kind of work stoppage kinds of things. Now, you're an educator by trade, right? You Right, yes. You're not a historian, correct? No, I'm not a historian, but I was a school superintendent, and then um, I was um, worked at the state level as director of finance with the Ohio Department of Education, and then before I left there, I was an interim state superintendent of public construction, and then I went to Ashland University, and I was a professor there, and then I became dean of the College of Education, and I guess the research bug got me when I was at Ashland because I had to do research mm-hmm. uh, to maintain, you know, to receive tenure and be promoted. So that's kind of what got me going with looking at uh, this is through a research eye, not necessarily an author's eye, but through a research eye. Mm-hmm. I see. And this isn't your only book uh, related to World War II, correct? No, I wrote a book about uh, my father-in-law uh, when he went across Europe and, and it was a tribute to the 109th Evacuation Hospital and traced him across Europe. And then I've just done a reprint of that where I had some families contact me after they read the book and said, could you put in some more information about the nurses in the unit? So they sent me information about their relatives serving in the unit, and I incorporated that into a second reprint. And then I've got another book in the works that stems from the book I wrote about the POWs, about contamination of a school district, where the school district bought uh, 78 acres from the Marion Engineering Depot, which they found was contaminated and led to a high rate of leukemia of some of the graduates of the River Valley Local School District. So the title of the book is Poisoning of the River Valley Local School District, and it's with Arcadia Publishing, the History Press. And we're kind of at a standstill now because of the coronavirus and, you know, the virus situation. But I've got that written, and it's just getting ready to be published. Well, I tell you, this is a great time in this sense that, you know, people are home, you know, during this pandemic, and there is a world of uh, information out there on the internet related to local history. So my question is um, to you, in a general sense about local history, um, how was it for you writing these books and going out and giving talks to the community and so forth? Uh, and engaging people on this history, you know, at the local level. How, how have you found that experience? You've, you said that a lot of people didn't really know this history at all, but is there a lot of interest? Uh, you have a sense that people really want to get out and learn more about this? Are you, are you really raising awareness in a big way? Well, it, it was amazing in the Cleveland area. I did, uh, did 12 library presentations at branch libraries around the Cleveland area. And, you know, I thought, well, I'm going to get, 10 or 12 people, I would get 40 to 50 to 60 people attending. Wow. And not only senior citizens, but people of all ages. And I even had students from some of the high schools attend the meeting. And everybody was kind of blown away about the information from the book. And yet, 
some of the people had experienced it through their families, so they contributed to those conversations, which was kind of exciting. And I still maintain relationships with some of the people at those meetings, uh, and we correspond back and forth. And I'm sure a lot of those relationships are, you know, they're illuminating. They People share their experiences with you, um, you know, their own experiences with the camps or people they know, uh, the war and so forth. Do you find that, and I, I, I think this is an interesting question, really. Do you find that the more people know about the history in their own locales, the more that they, they uh, try to engage that and learn more? Yeah, they do. Um, they have... Um Apparently, through the library, they've attended some other meetings having to do with World War II. And then um, one interesting thing, I, one of my presentations, of course, I had a radio station cover it, and they in turn uh, did an article and did some stuff on their radio station and then did an article in a local newspaper in the Cleveland area. And then at one of the presentations, I didn't realize this, I had a group of people that have a museum at the Akron-Canton Airport and they approached me later to help them incorporate a exhibit about World War II POWs in Ohio, along with their exhibit uh, of other World War II uh, kinds of things at the museum. And so we're working on a project right now and uh, going to do a display with that with some of the materials and photos for my book uh, that they're going to include in that, which was kind of exciting and was kind of an offshoot that I didn't expect from these presentations. Yeah, certainly, certainly. Well, you know, I raised uh, the point about, you know, here we are during this coronavirus pandemic and, you know, we're stuck in the house, many of us anyways, and, uh, you know, the internet is our window to the world. And uh, and I'm hoping that this podcast here will inspire people to, uh, uh, you know, look into this topic more. And, uh, you know, those in Pennsylvania could look into POW camps in this state as well and yours and so forth. That just opens up a whole world. And I think that there are people out there, you know, listening to this and looking at their own local history situation and, you know, thinking, wow, you know what? These stories need to be told. So here you are. You are, uh, you're an author. You put this book together. What advice do you have to someone who is in a community and they know that there is maybe it's a World War II history or some other sort of history. What advice do you have for that person to, uh, to pull all this together and maybe create a manuscript, a book or um, a, a display at the local history museum or historical society? Well, the, the one thing that uh, came out of this is uh, a lot of these small communities have museums and like the Ottawa County Historical Museum is a real find. They have a whole section about the POWs in Ohio, and they have a section about World War II veterans. The MAPS Museum at the Akron-Canton Airport is another example of, I never knew it existed. The libraries, if people look at some of the presentations at the libraries, at least in the Cleveland area, there's a lot that have to do about local history, not only including World War II, but about history of, the, of Cleveland, about history of their local town with a lot of offers giving those presentations. And then I did a book fair that um, was in Wooster, Ohio, that had 3,000 attendees at the book fair. And I had a lot of people come up and look at my book and buy my book. And a lot of that was about history in Ohio, which was kind of exciting to see all these people. Over 3,000 attended the book fair, wow. which I never knew existed. People are really into local history, but yet, and you admitted yourself, 
you know, you didn't even know that some of these little museums existed. Why do you think that is? Um, maybe, you know, we're too concentrated on politics and issues that aren't relevant to our local history and that uh, we need to explore local history, uh, notwithstanding what's happening at the national level. But local history brings you, you know, a lot of pride and knowledge of the people that made a difference at the local level. Yeah, you know, I think a lot of people may not really understand the significance of this thing, local history. You know, World War II, right? That's not necessarily local history, right? But World War II, the social, economic, the political uh, uh, lives during these war years in your community, now that's local history. We connect the dots between the micro and the macro, you know, the the big sweeping currents of history, and then the, those minor um, uh, granular experiences, right, of history in our own community. You know, hey, that building there, that was a that was a, a munitions manufacturing place, or right. this place over here. You know, this this boulevard is named for somebody that has. You know, if we don't know those um, those uh, those micro right. sense of history, I think we're really at a loss. Well, I came across one interesting thing at the Erie Proving Ground site. The buildings are now closed, but um, the administrative building uh, for that site, I went up, and it was in the winter, and I had to get permission to get on the grounds. But at the entrance of that building, were above it were three flames, and they were symbols of liberty uh, from the Statue of Liberty that they had put on the building during World War II, that, you know, we're, we are going to get through this, uh, we're free people, and we're going to maintain as free people, which I thought was really interesting. Hmm. And doing the book here, what, what was your big aha moment? Um, you know, really, the aha moment is we're doing the presentations, hmm. the interest uh, from the book. Uh, you know, it's got a lot of data in it, and uh, it's uh, I've got a lot of photos and everything, but it was the aha moment came when I did these presentations around the Cleveland area. People were really excited. They wanted to know more. They stayed afterwards. I've received uh, emails from that. And that kind of was a high moment. The book was, you know, research. Here it is. Uh, here's some things that nobody knew about. But yet, when I did the presentations, it became exciting to, to do those because I was giving knowledge to people that, you know, they didn't know about it. And they were real excited to understand what happened in, here in Ohio and the United States. Well, let me take you back a little bit to the process. You know, I was, uh, I was interested in that just a little bit ago. You mentioned that part of your process was, yeah, you were discovering all these local resources, museums, and so forth. And, you know, you were gathering information there. Beyond that, what kind of recommendations would you give to somebody out there who wants to pull together, you know, they want to visit their museums and their communities and so forth, but they want to pull together something. What was your process? What advice would you have for a person to sort of coalesce a lot of data, right? A lot of information. Did you keep like uh, uh, folders on the computer? Were you scanning things? Were you taking photographs of things? The real source that started this was the National Archives in Washington, D.C., so I had uh, a lot of correspondence with them, and I would ask for photos for a certain period of time. You know, for instance, do you have photos of Camp Marion, uh, or what about uh, the Columbus Depot? And so I developed a real relationship with people at the National Archives, and they provided uh, a lot of photos for me. And then uh, in Chicago, 
at the National Archives there, they had a real treasure trove of materials that I used in the book. And so that's helped to supplement what I found at the local level. And then in the library in Port Clinton, the Ida Rupp Public Library, um, they had newspapers and microfilm that stretched back to the 1940s. So I went back through those and were able to capture a lot of the information about the camps in Ohio. And it was the most interesting part was the date hut at uh, Erie Proving Ground, which I found in the newspaper. Mm-hmm. So basically, I started with National Archives, and then I proceeded to go down to the local level. Did you have any uh, revelations in the researching of your book and, and uh, in your talks and so forth that um, you know, ended up contradicting sort of prevailing uh, uh, knowledge of these camps? In other words, did you, did you sort of dispel some sort of common notions about the camps with some of your research? Well, the only thing that, um, that I came out of it uh, that you know, people had talked about in the 40s was the coddling of the prisoners of war. Uh, the other thing that I kind of dispelled was, uh, you know, people were afraid of the prisoners of war in the United States. And what I found in Ohio, those that were allowed to work outside the camp, uh, the Germans were hard workers, didn't say much, didn't smile much. Uh, the Italians, when they left the camp, were always, you know, very, always very happy, worked well, not as well as the Germans, though, because the Germans were hard workers. And there were relationships that developed from that. Uh, the hardcore Nazis didn't see the light of day. They were often sent to concentration places down in Texas for discipline purposes. So those that were left uh, developed relationships in a positive manner and worked hard to help turn the labor shortage around. Are you aware of any POWs who have come back? I mean, in, in contemporary times, you know, like a lot of um, uh, World War II veterans make pilgrimages back to Europe, you know, Normandy, the beaches, and so forth. Are you aware of any of these uh, Italians or German POWs that have come back in recent years and have toured these camps that they were in? The only one I'm aware of is the family that were at one of my presentations that um, the father and their mother uh, went back to Camp Perry uh, and visited. They lived in Cleveland right now, and they went back to Camp Perry and visited that and the Toledo Blade did a newspaper article about their visit to the camp and showed them outside the hutments. And the father told about his time when he was a POW at Camp Perry. And that was the only one I've come across. If I were to guess, I would say that there have been others who have come back. Um, or if they haven't come back, they've, they've been telling those stories in Italy and in Germany about their time in, um, in America. Yeah, absolutely. So the book is World War II POW Camps in Ohio. Now, I'm sure people are going to be interested in this after hearing this. And where can someone get a hold of your book? They can, they can go to Amazon, and it's on there. It's through Arcadia Publishing, the History Press. And it's I think it's retailing right now for $15 when originally it came out at $21.99. So they've got a bargain. I see. I see. <laughs> it's a bargain, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, great. Jim, is there anything else you want to... You want to talk about it? No, I just, I appreciate your time and allowing me to do this. And uh, I hope it reaches some people out there and they have an interest in their local history and pursue other kinds of history uh, that they're interested in and gives them an idea of approach to do it. And I appreciate, you know, you're you're taking the time to do this. That sort of just raises um, uh, a thought in my head about uh, something else that you've been doing around the book. Now, you started to record audio explications of the book, right? 
Right. Yeah. Matter of fact, I just put up on Spotify an audio portion that talks about new arrivals to the United States and Ohio. And um, it's an 11-minute segment. And I'm going to do two other segments. One's about camp life, and the other one's called Outside the Fences, which talks about POWs and their work outside the fences, and then some of the escapes they did and those kinds of things. So I'm start, I'm working on that right now. And thanks to your suggestions, I, I've uh, got some ideas on how to do it. Well, you know that uh, multimedia is the name of the game today, and especially the younger generation. You know, there's a there's a desire to have things um, visual and auditory. Uh, I don't want to say that you know people aren't reading as much as they are because I think people still are. It doesn't hurt when we have, you know, things like you, the topic here presented in book form, presented in a, a podcast episode or a video and so forth. That's just sort of the nature of where we are today. Uh, so I'm glad to hear that, you know, you're, you're doing some audio work around this. And um, I'm sure that's going to really, um, you know, benefit the topic and benefit your work as well. Well, you know, I think it's a good time right now. We were abroad and we're confined for 14 days in the house. And the governor just recently, Ohio's governor, just said, stay at home. You can't be out on the road uh, unless it's essential work. And then other states are doing the same thing. And then our grandkids are doing online classes uh, from home. And um, it looks like Ohio is going to be shut down. Uh, the school year is going to be shut down for the rest of the year. So, yeah, multimedia is the way to go right now. And it's, uh, you know, keeping people involved and aware of what's going on in the world. It's a time for us to localize and to sort of take stock of you know who we are and where we are and looking into our own local history is one of those things. And, you know, unfortunately, I think that, you know, uh, we shortchange ourselves in terms of what we are doing with our local history work. You know, public historians um, at the local level, I think, tend to focus too much on the past and too much on artifacts and things like that rather than living history, oral histories, for example, which, you know, just... Uh, thought came to my mind. Are there oral histories recorded around, you know, this topic of the POW camps in Ohio? Are there uh, videos out there or audio recordings in archives? I'm not aware of any at this point in time. Well, you know, there's a, there's a point right there. It's like, oh, gee, well, where are those oral histories out there? You know, um, maybe they've been recorded and maybe they're in a shoebox somewhere or maybe they weren't recorded at all. I don't know. So I, I'm the project I'm working on right here in um, in Beaver County where I live is I'm I'm doing basically secondary research or crowdsourcing uh, media collection right. of the voices and stories of this pandemic here. So, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, like I said, we're confined for 14 days, and um, so our children are doing our grocery shopping for us, and um, they're leaving it on the front steps. When we run out of something, matter of fact, my one daughter called today and said, do you need anything? And uh, we're keeping distance and uh, not leaving the house uh, because uh, when we came back into the States, they said you had to be quarantined for 14 days. And so we have to take our temperature in the morning and at night and record it. And um, so our children who, they live near us and we don't see them that often, all of a sudden we get lots of communication with them. <laughs> Yeah, which could be a good thing, bad thing. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of interesting. You know, this this time reminds me that, you know, history is cyclical, right? There's nothing new under the sun, I think. 
So when we think, when we read your book, right, and we try to wrap our heads around the war years and uh, what it was like in Ohio, well, you know, those were years of, um, of want and need and uncertainty and scarcity. And so here we are today, you know, we are sort of right. reliving those kinds of dynamics again today. And I never really thought about it before till now. It's like, oh, my goodness, you know what I mean? You just can't go where you want now. You can't do what you want. Uh, right. And so it just reminds me of what our earlier generations went through during the war. Yeah, I had at um, one of the presentations I did, um, one lady spoke up and she had gone through... Um, World War II as a child, and she said, you know, we weren't allowed to have salt or sugar, and I, and I had done a menu of what POWs had eaten one in one day, the kinds of foods, and it showed sugar and milk, and she said, we weren't allowed, we didn't have any, we were rationed to the point we couldn't hardly get anything, so, you know, it's, it's really interesting, and we're going through what my parents went through during World War II. Well, in a sense, we are prisoners of this war with the virus. Right. Right. So uh, yes. maybe we can, maybe we all can relate on that level of, uh, you know, the confinement and restrictions on our liberties and so forth. And Jim, I want to thank you so much for being sure. on Veteran Voices, the Oral History Podcast. This was fascinating. And, you know, feel free to reach out again if you have another project. We'd love okay. to talk with you. And uh, I certainly want, want to promote your book and the topic here. Appreciate that. You are listening to a production of the Social Voice Podcast Network. It's got me thinking about the insane, underrated, underpriced, underappreciated value in our society of studying history. Now, you know, the typical thing that people say is if you don't study history, you're doomed to repeat it. Da, 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 da. That's not where I'm going with this. Where I'm going with this is that when you study the history of things, you begin to understand why they exist. For instance, there's a thing in audio engineering called the loudness wars where people are trying to make their music louder and louder. Why? The simplest answer is is that if we hear two versions of something and one is louder than the other, we'll think that the louder one is better.